Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Relationships are so important in our lives. We are social creatures. We like to be around other people. But with that comes some challenges if you've maybe not picked the right people to be in your life. Or maybe things have changed, and I'll never forget when somebody said this to me, that those people don't serve you anymore. And it was a game changer. It was like, okay, time to make some changes in terms of some of the people that I was involved with. We're going to talk about relationships today, how to navigate through that, how to maybe even see the warning signs of some things that are going on. She's an amazing licensed clinical psychologist. She wrote literally the book for your life. Love yourself and love your life. And she is Ann Creekmore. She's back with us. Hi, Ann. How are you? Hey, Steve. Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm loving your book, by the way. Uh, it is like it is like the handbook. I don't know if it's it's reversed here, but it's like the handbook to your life. Like everything is in here. Such an easy read. Uh, very relatable, very grounded in terms of your writing style. Uh, Everything you need is really in this book. We're going to do chapter seven today, basically uh, relationships, right? Correct. Create healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times we, we have the best intentions, but sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's the other person. I know the word narcissist is a word you see coming up all the time now. It's kind of a, like a, a trendy word. What is Let's start there. What is a, a narcissist or a narcissism? Um, that's a good question. Um, in the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, it's described primarily as the exhibitionistic type of narcissist, which is, you know, someone who thinks they're special, unique, has these grandiose fantasies about themselves, thinks they're really better or they're, you know, than they really are, or they may be boasting, bragging, vain, um, expecting entitlement treatment, and so on. Um, there is also the other type of narcissist that is a covert narcissist. They call used to call it the covert, you know, or hmm. closet narcissist. We kind of know what's in the closet. You know, you're not outright acting, boasting, and like you know everything um, and are very special. You're in the closet about that. They call that now the vulnerable narcissist. And I kind of have a little joke in the sense that the closet narcissist is one we really don't recognize. And uh, we're the ones really that are vulnerable. They're considered the vulnerable narcissist because they may seem a little more neurotic and self-effacing and they don't have the self-esteem. But really, they have the same issue as the exhibitionistic or traditional looking narcissist. Um, Supposedly, according to like personality developmental theory, they, um, the, the personality disorder of narcissism, which I want to get into this because I don't think everybody who's, a, who's seen as a narcissist is a narcissist like this, but I'm going to give you that example. Um, the idea being that when the child, the child's personality is developed by age seven or so, and when the child is going through their narcissistic phase, their individuation rapprochement type phase around two to three years old where they're starting to develop a sense of self 
and they're starting to kind of withdraw or be their own person, some from the parent individuate, that they have, uh, they realize at a level emotionally that one of their parents, their caretakers really doesn't love them, you know, really isn't there for them. And so what they do at that point as a defense mechanism is they develop a false self or grandiose self that is always looking for approval. In other words, it's basically like another addict or junkie where, you know, in the sense of their junk would be they're going to get approval by other people. They're going to get attention, convenience. Um, So they're out there looking for someone to, you know, praise them or look to you know, recognize them and then they're, they're enjoying that and then they're recovering from that and then the next thing they're moving on to the next person and basically just trying to look good all the time i have That's questions something. i have lots of questions i'm gonna i'm gonna okay, i'm gonna, I'll be quiet. I'm gonna rifle through that. right here here I know, we go i know go so, <laughs> because this is such a big big deal and uh-huh. a lot of times in relationships the one person may say about the other one he or she is a narcissist that's why it didn't work out that may not necessarily be the case. So let's go back right. to the one parent um, that didn't give love to the child. Is that the child's perception? Like, for example, let's say parents split up at a very early age for a child. Um, and, you know, maybe dad is removed. You know, he's not around as much. Could mm-hmm. that be the perception of the, the, the child thinking that, well, dad doesn't love me. So then they go on in life wanting to get approval for what was missing there. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Cause I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I don't want it to be like, Oh, the parent caused this person to be a narcissist. Right. And you know, because it is all in the child's perception. Okay. And, uh, and of course, you know, a parent could die and then that child is three or four and, you know, it can become kind of narcissistic feeling abandoned, you know, cause they don't understand death or the, they so just had an auto accident. Now, now, now my next question, and thanks for clarifying that. And yeah, you know, if one parent passed away, the perception mm-hmm. is just that. What yeah. is the difference between, and I'm going to go back to what you said, that person always looking for approval or just appreciation Let's say you're in a relationship and, you know, your partner doesn't give you, you know, like words of affirmation, whatever, however love language you want to call it. Um, uh-huh. What's the difference between that? Um, well, the person I, I have used this example, like say a person who's an who is truly kind of narcissistic. The example I give is like, say there's two people and one person is selling magazines in the neighborhood. And then there's another person and they're not selling magazines in the neighborhood who is probably going to sell more magazines. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I want to sell in the magazines. The person who's narcissistic is always selling themselves. That is their, you know, it's kind of like the person who's, you know, an addict of some kind is always looking for the drug or taking a drug. The person who's actually a narcissist is always just looking to get that attention, that approval, that everything they say. In fact, often in the closet narcissist case, they probably look like saints. They actually, you know, are going to say or do everything that makes them, you know, is the correct thing to say to the person. And, um, and that would be, you know, and, and, and they wouldn't even look like they have an narcissistic tendency. That would be in the closet type. Okay. I've got, I've got another one. I don't mean to cut you off, but I'm going to, I'm going to follow through here. 
What if somebody, and there's, and this is why I wanted to bring this up right at that point that you're making. Mm-hmm. So many people are people pleasers for whatever right. reason it might be. They might be doing it because um, they felt they weren't good enough and they just want to, you know, just make people happy. What's the difference between the people pleasers and the, you know, covert closet narcissist who is just doing things because they want uh, attention, uh, approval. What is, is there a difference? What is the difference? Absolutely. There's a big difference between people who are looking for approval. In fact, you know, or people pleasing, in fact, or codependent, as we say, you know, uh, over-functioning or in trying to keep things calm and so on. And so there's a very big difference between that. And I would say it's just, I think they say maybe narcissists are 1% of the population. Maybe that's what it is. I would even say that it's possible they're not that high even because a lot of people who appear narcissistic actually have other misdiagnosed or overlooked or untreated kind of disorders that they act narcissistically. They're not really, you know, like having that of personality disorder, which is a very good description of how they behave, but it's not the cause. And that if you erase or treat the other disorders, um, then they wouldn't even be acting narcissistically. You can think of a lot of, a lot of people saying that are substance abusers or alcoholics or drug addicts, and they act very narcissistically when they are using, when they're active. When they go into recovery, they, you know, and they're in AA and they're following their higher power or or whatever they've done to, you know, to stop, to be sober and work on their moral, you know, psychological recovery. They are not acting narcissistically at all. In fact, you know, maybe the opposite. So in their personality wasn't actually a narcissist. Um, it was, you know, they were doing, they were addicted to something and that they were preoccupied. And so they don't have empathy. They're just about getting their fix and then getting over their fix and then finding it again. So what I'm getting from you is there are, there are a lot of people that have some challenges from their past, most likely, and they're, they're, they're called narcissists, but they may not be. And if, if somebody is a true narcissist. I mean, they have, you know, all the traits there, everything falls into line. It's not like it's a disease. It's there's reasons for it that got them there. I'm not giving anybody a free pass here, but there's, right. there's no. reasons, there's reasons behind it. Correct. Hmm. Okay. Correct. So let's, let's move from narcissists onto healthy relationships. How do you weed out, you know, what might not, as I said before, serve you. Cause that was a wake up call for me, you know, went through a divorce and uh, a friend of mine who is um, very, uh, she, she's a therapist. I've known her since I was 17. She's like, you know, mm-hmm. my sage, you know, all Not- of, we just text, we don't even talk. And there came a point where she said that, you know, those people, uh, my ex's family, they don't serve you anymore. And it almost felt dirty. Like when she said it, I, I felt like, you know, the King on the Hill, like be gone with you. You don't just, you don't serve me anymore. But I got it after a while, like things changed and they don't fit in my life. I don't fit in their life. But how do you figure that out? Because it, you know, sometimes it's tough. Right. Um, well, I mean, it's good to have good friends, like you just mentioned, that kind of look out for you. Yeah. Basically, whoever you're with should you know, be concerned about your welfare and be able to be open and share, you know, what they think that's going to help you, you know, to point out if something they think, oh, that could be harming you, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. you don't want to do that. 
And so having, you know, people in your lives that have your back basically um, is very important. And navigating, let's say, a uh, partnership, romantic relationship. Let's go there. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. What what are your thoughts Mm -hmm. about that? Uh, That's probably one of the hardest (laughs) types of relationships. Right. Well, I mean, there are three main connections that make for a long lasting relationship, kind of like a soul connection, you know, love of life type of thing. And uh, that's what we kind of get drawn to each other around. And those would be like one, you get romantic chemistry. Of course, that would be uh, important. Second would be that the most important one would be that kind of caretaking, that kind of parenting devotion connection. If you feel that way towards the person and you're going to be looking out for them and they, and you feel that they're treating you that way with that respect and that care being kind of devoted to your well-being, that they're going to be there and have your back if you were having a crisis or, or whatever. And then, of course, the third one is being able to communicate, not just in the healthy, polite, tactful, you know, the communication skills, but also having a similar thought world, usually like a similar life philosophy or religion, spirituality, where you can kind of talk deeply about something beyond, you know, the material, you know, more transcending yourself. So you're growing emotionally and Mm. together. So those would be kind of three things to kind of look for in a romantic connection. Generally, people get attracted around just maybe the romantic chemistry originally. But if you really don't have uh, the other dimensions, at least two both ways of the other dimensions, like at least you've got the the devotion, caretaking, best friendship and the chemistry, you know, or, you know, as friends, maybe you've got the life philosophy in the um and the, you know, the best friendship type of thing. If it's only like one and a half, like you're with somebody that doesn't really care about you, you care about them, you're really devoted to their well-being and you have chemistry with them, but they're not really having your back, then that's not really going to last. That's not going to be a long lasting, you know, kind of satisfying relationship. So kind of, you can think in terms of that. How and about along the way um, when things change, you know, let's say, uh-huh couple has been together for a good amount of time. I've often heard that we reevaluate our lives every five years and then it takes two to act on it. And that's why that there's the, the proverbial seven year itch. Right. I don't know if that's accurate. I've heard it a number of times. Um, Mm -hmm. I can even trace back and, and interestingly in relationships in my life, when I trace back to every seven years, it's a pinnacle point. Could be a coincidence, uh-huh. but there's a something happened uh, in the relationship every seven years. You know, right. and and it might not be a bad thing. It could be a, a change of house, you know, things like that. But I don't know. It's just uh-huh. a, I got the seven rule. I don't know. I don't. Just, uh-huh. you know, but, uh-huh. but what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, um, what what is your question? Tell me a little uh, bit more. Specific. When when like- couples change. You know, uh-huh. and, and they, and they, they grow apart. How do you, how do you stay together? You know, how do you prepare for something like that? Um, yeah, everything started great in the beginning, number of years go by and then things change. How do you make sure that doesn't happen? Right. Kind of like relationships are like a boat trip you get on, you're going a certain way, but it goes slightly off and all of a sudden you're way over somewhere else that you didn't want to be. Yep. And so, I mean, of course I would say therapy, you know, like premarital counseling or whatever type of, you know, counseling or uh, 
or emotional growth kind of group things you want to do or individual rather couple things you want to do um and being able to communicate if things aren't going you know if you're going apart then to maybe go get some help get some counseling don't just kind of let it fester and continue on that path till it gets to a breaking point kind of go and say hey wait a minute you know And then get some help to work on whatever it is that could be causing to figure out what's causing it. Because people bring a lot of baggage into their relationships, you know, what they trigger traumatic memories, things that happen in their childhood. And so they're reacting more maybe to something that is a trigger for them versus the actual, you know, things going on in the relationship. And it can be helpful through therapy to understand what your triggers are and maybe heal and hopefully heal your triggers or work your grief through and not be seeing it and bringing it into the relationship. There can also be a lot of times somebody has some issues or disorders, you know, that are, that are untreated. You know, what person might have a, there may be a lot of verbal aggression. The person may be in more the early phase of their alcohol problem and their, that's a hallmark feature. You know, to become verbally aggressive, disrespectful, defensive, like wanting to do your thing, you know, and then it it does, you're not really empathic in the relationship. And that could be something you come in and go, wow, you're actually on this gelatin chart working on this progressive thing that you can, you know, you need to work on and change that. It's hard to say because a good therapist would give, I I do this, I mean, that I would do a lot of assessment when couples come in at the beginning. They're going to fill out a whole lot of information about all their symptoms, their history, psychiatric, legal, their developmental history, childhood history, the psychiatric history of family members there they'll take the adhd test you know see if there's got some adhd there maybe they're acting impulsive that can really disrupt a relationship and they're not under even know when they had it um getting to see if they have a dissociative are on the spectrum for a dissociative identity disorder you know spectrum kind of thing they call it complex ptsd not the kind of um you know, just uh, a PTSD that occurs when you become an adult, if you have an incident when you're an adult, but the kind that comes from early childhood abuse and neglect, and you've gotten the PTSD of a complex nature, that really can affect a relationship. Mm. And um, so just kind of finding out, well, wait a minute, what's going on? If we're having a problem, let's see, look deeper of what, what could be causing this and what can we do to make it better? I love that you're very thorough, and uh, proof of that is uh, in the book. <laughs> it really is. Uh, what about and what about when uh, one part of a relationship is decides to cheat? And I've I've I often heard that it it's it's more that person's issues than it is the other person in their relationship. What are your thoughts? Right. Um, well. In that, absolutely. I mean, it's that person that chose to go outside the marriage and um, it probably has to do with something that's bothering them that they should have come and talked about in the relationship where they, you know, 
should say, hey, you know, we're not having intimacy, you know, anymore. And and they may say that, of course, but it doesn't happen. So let's go get some help. Let's get some therapy, some couples therapy or some sex therapy, you know, and work on our relationship instead of just looking outward as that kind of it becomes a wake up call. You know, that there's something wrong. There's some dissatisfactions going on. And it could be that that person is having. Uh, their own individual issue. They could be a substance abuser and they're going out and they're drinking in their business and they hook up with somebody, you know, and then it maybe if they hadn't been, they wouldn't uh, picking on the, the alcohol today, but you know, they might not have acted out if they hadn't had the drinking problem and been drinking. And that other person as well, who knows they're married, get hooks up with them, even though they know they're married because right. they're so there's issues that, you know, to bring in and work on. It's wake-up call for the relationship. It's, is, is it recoverable? I mean, can you, in that situation, can you recover from that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in my personal experience of seeing clients, plenty of clients, I mean, uh, they come in because they want to work through the infidelity. They want to heal uh, from what happened to them. Um, and I mean, I, I, I even saw one, I think I might've mentioned this before, but you know, the five love languages and the quality time is one. And it really involves time practically every day, a couple of hours of really just worthless. I call it worthless hanging out, not because it's worthless, but because just being friends, just no pressure. There's no money involved. You're just hanging out enjoying each other's company, being friends. And you start doing that. And I actually had one couple that once they realized that her, she was betrayed and she realized that her love language main one was quality time. He realized it started. They started just doing it. She was almost ready. She was forgiven the whole thing. Wow. Wow. Sometimes you can hit the right button, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and heal something really quickly. The five, Uh, five love languages. We don't need to go through them uh, today unless you want to, but is that in your book? I didn't see it yet. I'm not sure, you know, is, hmm. I know that's terrible to not remember everything you put in the book. But, it's a, it's, um, there's a lot in the book, Anne. I'm going to, you, you get a pass. It is covering all of the main schools of thought in psychology and psychotherapy. Sure. So, but written, like you said, so that everyone could read it and get their little toolbox hand out at the end of the chapter and be able to do it for themselves. But I, I would say, no, I did not put that in the book. Okay. And, uh, but you, there is a book. Uh, written on it um, and it's called the five love languages and there's a quiz the five love languages quiz you can do right on your phone you can identify what your five you know rank for your the five main love languages and how important they are to you and you can share that with your partner and you know and try to increase that you know so it's it's readily available you know I I, somebody told me uh, the love languages that it doesn't just apply to uh, couples or romantic relationships. It can be, tw- be like a parent and their and their child. Absolutely. In fact, I, it was originally for couples, but now it's been extended that they actually have the quizzes online that you can take for your child or your child, depending wow. on all that they fill out. There's the book, that companion book for the uh, five love languages for children. So yes, you can, it's for anyone to kind of understand what makes the other person, anyone you're relate, you know, involved with to figure out what their way of feeling loved is. Everybody, 
we all need stuff, <laughs> so you know, exactly. and and in different doses. What what I need more of, you probably don't need more of. It's just the, that's just the way it is, exactly. right? Exactly. It's kind of like you know the TV people like a TV set. You kind of can you know if you walked over in the old days and started pressing it's off and you start pressing volume, nothing's happening. You press down, nothing happening. You got to press power. So that's why it's so important to understand how the other person experiences love, so you can provide that, not just provide the way you experience love, which might be a different way, and that's how they should return the love in the way that you feel it. Exactly. Yeah. I. What? Where else should we talk about when it comes to relationships? What do you think? Um. Well. Um. I. I, I don't know. Um. What do you think? Do you want to talk a little bit about disorders that can impact relationships in a negative way? Hundred percent. And uh, I, I'm guessing we we started with uh, narcissist. I'm guessing that some of those could actually be perceived as narcissism. Exactly. Perfect. Um. Yes. Because really underlying narcissistic behavior could be a number of uh, issues or disorders. One, um, you know, any kind of addiction is going to, the person, if they're actively an addict, they're going to be preoccupied with their fix and not being empathic in the relationship. So they're going to be acting narcissistically. So that could be a person with NPD, Uh, even the one in the closet that's acting like they're doing everything, the helper for the other person, but actually what they're doing is setting them up in some ways to look, you know, to, to go down. They don't mean to do that's not necessarily, it's just about them, you know, looking good. And that's how they looked good. So they, the person went down as, and they got to look good. Um, there's substance abuse. There's um, bipolar depression. There's unipolar and bipolar depression. They both can look like depression uh, or they both, but if it's, if it's treated as a unipolar depression, just the flat, not enough serotonin type depression, then they are actually just getting more of a lift of the bipolar addictive lifestyle lift with the serotonin SSRI uh, reuptake um, inhibitor uh, antidepressant, which in other words, I'm saying is contraindicated for bipolar depression. A person with a bipolar depression is kind of like, has an addictive lifestyle. Basically, their person who also has a depression. You know, just like someone with a unipolar depression, go to PCP, get some serotonin, you know, feel better, get a more positive mood. But the one with bipolar has learned how to lift themselves out of depression by becoming a manic. Basically, they can spy something shiny, put their running shoes on, start chasing it. And then they've released their own serotonin, their own dope adrenaline and they've got a high going euphoric cocktail going without having to go to the bar i never and knew that, that that's what the, I'm, we're out of time i'm, I'm oh, like i look okay. up i'm like is that even possible like over time um yeah but i i i know somebody whose wife they, they broke up but um he suspected that she was bipolar and even toward the end of the marriage when they were even having challenges she went out and bought a pool you know what we need right, right. we need to overspend is classic yeah. you know just buying something doing something or infidelity you know mm. but it's easily treatable with the correct you know atypical antidepressants and uh with the mood stabilizer types you know which they can get by figuring out you got the problem and then yeah. it's like driving something accurate that will 
level you out so you're not having to go up and down and up and down or be depressed or, or find a way to feel better i.e buy things or uh do something that it, exactly you might not Just be proud of facing something shiny you know and putting your running right. shoes on and then what goes up comes down because you you know incur negative consequences Absolutely. because you didn't think it through you just went and did it and then all of a sudden you got to deal with what you just did and that's depressing so, so how do we the book is available on amazon right correct mm-hmm. and i just want to remind people and also that it's under a different name as an author but love yourself love your life ap filosa is uh mm-hmm. your pen name your uh your main name um correct if you want to mm-hmm. look for it just a, a great book it really is there's so much good stuff in there and if somebody wants to connect with you on a therapy level how do they do that um i'm in virginia and uh you can look me up Psychologists in Virginia, psychologists is plural and spelled out, and Virginia is spelled out. Uh, that would be my website, and it should have all the information on it. Great talking with you today, Ann. Uh, I know I know it went well, and we hit a lot when it looks like it was a couple of minutes in, and we're you know we're over. <laughs> so, right, the yeah. usual. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think we hit a lot of things that are topical that people yeah. are talking about today, and, uh, and overall so. relatable. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Steve. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yep. All we'll right. talk soon. Thanks. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Of course my kid's in the right car seat. Well, I think he is. Yeah, my kid's in a booster seat. He was ready to move up. He is ready, right? Her car seat looks like the right size. There are probably rules on when to move up to a booster seat, aren't there? Rear facing, forward facing? I think I have it right. Car crashes are a leading killer of children 1 to 13. Are your children in the right car seat for their age and size? Don't think you know. Know you know. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat. I know my child's in the right car seat, or else I wouldn't get in the driver's seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.